this is your host, Rick Stump, and this is Lore by Rick, my podcast. I'm a longtime role-playing gamer from back in 77. I've been running my main campaign, AD&D First Edition, that I call Seaward, since 1979. And I've been playing a lot of other games for a lot of other times, too. I'm a proud hobbyist, not a professional. Uh, the opinions I express here are my personal opinions, and you feel, can feel free to ignore them as you like. Um, if you're interested in anything that I say or more communications, please feel free to visit my blog, harbingergames.blogspot.com. It has links to everything from the stuff that I sell, most of which is free or pay for what you want. Again, I'm a hobbyist. Some of my writings and our Discord. Today we're going to be talking about uh, Rules as Written and Rule Zero in AD&D First Edition and some other games, but in particular we're going to really zoom in on AD&D first, and the difference between rules as written and rule zero. As a huge longtime player of AD&D first edition and a big fan of the game, I see some interesting confusion over what rule zero means compared to rules as written or raw. There can be no real conflict between the idea of using rule zero and rules as written unless you're doing something extreme. And this is pretty evident and that Gygax understood this when he wrote the rules. There's a couple places in the rules where he mentions incompatibility. This is the AD&D First Edition Player's Handbook and the Dungeon Master's Guide. Um, under campaigning and time, at one point, Gary specifically states whether through design, people working closely together and coordinating with each other, or simple happenstance, it will be uncommon otherwise for players to be able to play their characters from one AD&D first edition game into another. In other words, in a fully mature AD&D first edition campaign, Gary fully expected that your player will not be able to play in my campaign from your campaign to be most common. He fully expected the idea of you just picking up a 7th level character from a 10-year-old AD&D precision campaign and dropping it into a different AD&D campaign that was 7 or 10 years old to be difficult, if not impossible. And yet he was also continually talking about obeying the rules of the book. And we also talk about rule zero. This is something that Gary you know, talked about in his discussions. The Game Master's Final Arbiter. This is true. And yet, he also says, obey the rules of this book. How can that be? Well, there's no conflict here if you know what he means. And this is a simple thing. Rule zero is about dealing with those things that aren't necessarily explicit in the rules, and dealing with issues that come up in your campaign. Let me give you an example. Let's say that a player character comes to you and says, well, a player comes to you and says, my character wants to invent a new spell. Here's the outlines of that spell, what it can do, what it can't do. You approve it and say it's third level. Now, if you're playing a long-term campaign with multiple characters per player and strict timekeeping the way that Gary intended. This is going to happen more than once. This is going to happen 
to the point where you have a fair number of spells that are unique to your campaign. Now, this is a rule zero issue. If you were to say you can only play roles as written, then you can't have player character created spells. And yet, the spell creation rules in the game are detailed and explicit. It's something that you're basically expected to have happen in the game. So you have to understand that in a large, sprawling, long-term campaign, you're going to end up with unique spells. That alone can make characters unique to your game. What if over time you develop spells unique to paladins? Spells unique to rangers? This happens. Rangers can do research. Heck, paladins can do research. Clerics can do research. So you end up with your paladins, your rangers, your spellcasters all have a unique twist to them. And then you have other things that happen as well. The bard is in the appendices of the player's handbook. It's very common for uh, game masters to say, I don't allow bards. They're an optional class, and rules is written, I can exclude them. So they do. If that's the case, then you're a straight human fighter who's now a thief, can't play in that campaign because he doesn't allow bards, he doesn't allow humans to do that trick unless you qualify for multi-classing or your bard is certainly out of luck. And what if a game master comes up with their own unique alternate classes? Your own version of monk was extremely common back in the day. Almost as common as your own version of bard. Right? And I mentioned the monk. The monk is the most common class. It's quote-unquote official to not be allowed to be played. If for no other reason, it's so rare to have a player character qualify for a monk that some game masters decided, I'm not even going to have him. No one's ever going to roll one up. The odds are so rare, it's not going to, if they're going to be an issue. So if you've got a party with a bard and a monk in it from one campaign, and you go to another campaign, they could very well not have either. And is this against the rules? No, it's explicitly within the rules. Um, if you've got your own version of Bard, and again, early on, people coming up with their own classes was pretty much standard. That's where the Ranger and the Paladin, all these classes came from, people making new classes for OD&D. And um, they continued the quote-unquote NPC classes in Dragon Magazine, went on for years and years, where various examples of unique classes people had introduced in their games is this permissible? Well, of course it's permissible. If the game master decides that he has these um, characters in their game and they obey the rules, of course he can have them in there. <clears throat> in my own game, I have several NPC-only classes that are basically stripped-down, weaker versions of the primary classes. Scoundrels are watered-down thieves. Men-at-arms are watered-down fighters. Hedge mages are watered-down wizards, religious brothers and watered-down clerics, etc. And I actually, on my blog post, have spilled a tremendous amount of pixels explaining exactly how and why I introduced these NPC-only classes into my campaign. The idea was you could still have all those NPCs, and PCs would still be even more exceptional. Uh, it would also explain why you have things like sergeants that cannot go up in level. NPC sergeants are mercenaries. Well, that's because they're men-at-arms, not fighters, etc. 
So I did that to solve what I saw as a problem in a long-running campaign, that you ended up with either far too many or far too few PC classes of high level. So I solved it by simply saying most of the NPC positions are filled by NPC classes. Do I expect anyone else to do this? No. But does that mean that my, the characters in my campaign are rather different from the characters in another campaign, even though I'm using all the mechanics rules as written? Yes, it does. Started adding in PC-only classes, new races. And remember, this is all acceptable. Although Gary has said that he had concerns and not to let people play monsters, there's still rules for it in OD&D. And it, it doesn't mean that you can't introduce new non-monster PC races, right? Of course not. The Half-Ogre was wildly popular in Dragon Magazine for reasons. So there's no real conflict between Rule Zero and Raw. Even if you never make a new class, never make um, a new race, etc., the simple pr progress of unique magic items, unique spells, etc., will separate and make these campaigns drift apart until... Again, as Gary foresaw, it will largely be completely incompatible with characters over time, even if you're using the grappling rules, the domain rules, and everything else. And this isn't a weakness. It's the opposite. It's one of the strengths that makes AD&D so long-enduring. First edition is still around and still popular because at its heart, the books themselves serve two purposes. And that's why some people are confused by them. The books, especially DMG, are not just rule books. They're textbooks on how to do game design and a series of tools that allow you to turn your own AD&D first edition game into not just your own campaign world, but your own game. As I wrote in one of my blog articles many years ago now, when AD&D first came out, there was this understanding that in the end, everyone was making their own game in a very real way. When you look at Greyhawk and the stuff that uh, Gygax himself published, you'll see that it was drifting. Now, he was a game designer, and I'm not saying that, oh, because he changed rules, everyone can do whatever they want. Well, the fact of the matter is, is you can gatekeeping in role-playing games is impossible. Anyone can buy the rules and do whatever they want. And once you understand what the rules are like, anyone can just make their own rules. So I can't tell you you're doing it wrong. And have it mean anything meaningful. It's not like it's baseball, where there's a governing body that says, no, you can't even play because we're MLB and we have a franchise and we have a monopoly. This is much more akin to card games. If you want to make sevens wild in your poker game, there's nothing I can do from my poker table to prevent you from doing that. And this is something that Gary was very knowledgeable about. He had already had people coming to him with various alternate rules when he wrote AD&D First Edition. And as much as he insisted that you stick to certain core rules in AD&D, he was very well aware and even encouraged you to come up with your own unique solutions to many of the problems that were facing people. And he knew that over time, your unique solutions to the unique problems at your unique table would result in a unique game, even though it was still at its heart, AD&D, first edition.
So remember, rule zero means you're playing raw. And um, frankly, anybody that tells you differently doesn't understand how rule zero works. Thank you for so much for joining me today as I ranted about my personal opinion as if anyone else cares. Um, if you found this instructive or enjoyable, thank you very much, and I'm grateful. If you didn't, let me know how I can improve next time by contacting me at my blog, which I mentioned earlier. Thanks a lot.